Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. And here we are, the last month of the year, the last of the essential 100 books, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, page 1233 in the Pew Bibles, if you haven't found it already. It's been quite a journey, an interesting journey, a challenging journey, and the journey for which I know many here this morning would like to thank God and David. And on your behalf, I do want to thank David, who has given the bulk of the teaching throughout this past year, and to thank him for the manner in which he has brought to us a series that has challenged us, inspired us, encouraged us, helped us, and I believe above all, exalted God. So here we are in Revelation, and opinions about the book of Revelation differ greatly. It certainly isn't the first book you would recommend to new believers. Even among mature believers, there are different attitudes. Attitudes that range from the fearful, who can't get into the book, to the fanatical, who can't get out of it. The word revelation, I'm told, is a Greek word, apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse, a word meaning unveiling. Unveiling as in pulling on a cord or pulling back a curtain to unveil a picture or a plaque. And in the context of scripture, it's the unveiling of those things hidden from man but known to God. There are some things which we simply cannot know unless God chooses to inform us. And in the context of Revelation, we can't know what is happening in heaven. That's the theme of next Sunday. And we also cannot know what will happen in the future. However, when God writes history, he gives us a total and a complete picture because he not only sees history, He orders history. It is his story. And we have read already this morning the very theme of this book. God the Almighty who is working out his plans and purposes within time. He's the pre-existent God who was, who is, and who is to come as we see it in verse 8. First of all this morning, three questions. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? And why was it written? Who wrote it? John? Well, yes and no. You see, if you read very carefully the words and the context, there is a sense in which there are five writers. John was merely dictating or passing on, if you like, what was being given to him given to him by an angel. An angel sent by Jesus Christ who had received the unveiling from God. And if we include the sevenfold spirit in verse 4, then we have the five I mentioned a moment or two ago. God, Jesus, Spirit, Angel, John. To whom was it written? 
Well, firstly, seven letters were written to seven churches. They're identified for us in verse 11. And there are seven, those seven churches are churches with which John had personal contact. And seven churches, since scripture is applicable to all ages, which represent churches down through many centuries. We have the church at Smyrna, of which nothing bad is said, right through to the church at Laodicea, of which nothing good is said. But more about that this evening. Secondly, we need to remember that Revelation was written to a very ordinary people. It was addressed to the members of seven churches. And believe it or not, people in churches are very ordinary, as we all know. It was addressed to the members of those seven churches. And if Revelation seems complicated, it's because man has complicated it. Those to whom it was written were asked, just like you and me, to accept it with simple faith, with an open mind, and an open heart. The story is told of some theological students who were tired and not just a bit confused by the lectures they were getting on Revelation. So they decided to have a game of basketball in the college gymnasium. You can tell it was American. While playing, they noticed the janitor, because he's not a caretaker, he's a janitor. And they noticed the caretaker or the janitor was reading his Bible as he waited to lock up. They asked which part he was studying, and they were surprised to find he was going through Revelation. You don't understand that, do you? To which he replied, sure do. What's it about then? And at that, the janitor's eyes lit up, and with a big, broad smile came the reply, it's simple, Jesus wins. And of course, there's more to Revelation than that, but hey, that's not a bad summary. That, in a sense, answers the question to why it was written. It was written to those who were under persecution. If you have a look at verses 9 and 10, it tells us that John is already suffering for his faith. He's in a prison, but not for any crime. While Nero had begun the persecution of Christians, Nero, you'll remember, tarred Christians and set them on fire to use them as torches for his nightly garden parties. And at other times, he sewed them into the skins of wild animals to be hunted by dogs. But it was during the last decade of the first century that a man called Domitian began even more fierce attacks on Christians. And it was then that John found himself imprisoned for not obeying the dictates of this particular persecutor. A persecutor who demanded universal worship of himself. And for anyone who claimed that Jesus is Lord, it was, quite literally, a matter of life and death. Now imagine, if you can, how John must have felt. It's some 60 to 65 years before this that he walked and worked with this man, Jesus. He was known as one of Jesus' closest friends. John, who along with James, was one of the sons of Zebedee. The brothers, you recall, who wanted to sit, one on either side of Jesus in glory. 
John, who along with Peter and James, accompanied Jesus at his transfiguration. John, who wrote the gospel that bears his name, and the three epistles that bear his name. The one the Bible describes as being the one whom Jesus loved, now finds himself in prison for showing incredible loyalty to this same Jesus. It's been 60 to 65 years since John heard the voice of the one who loved him. 60 to 65 years of silence, of deprivation, of suffering, of sharing company with undesirables, murderers, thieves and the like. And then quite suddenly in verse 10, John hears that voice again. And what was John doing in the midst of those circumstances? Well, isn't it quite amazing? He was worshipping. Worshipping God in the midst of terrible circumstances. You see, John hasn't lost his perspective on life. His trials, as we recall from last week, were testing his development and his perseverance. And John receives a visit from an angel. He's heard the voice. But what's the message of that voice? John receives a visit from an angel with the greatest prophetic revelation that man has ever received. The voice and now the vision. The vision of a glorious, exalted Christ. And I want you to follow with me, if you would, through verses 12 to 16. In verse 12, John sees seven lampstands. And in verse 20, we're left with no doubt at all as to what these seven lampstands represent. They're the seven churches referred to in verse 11. And in the midst of those seven lampstands, in the midst of his church, stands Jesus. Jesus sees, John sees him as one who is like the Son of Man, retaining his humanity, but in a glorified state. John sees him dressed in a priestly robe with a golden sash. And here we see his royalty. But he's not only the King of Kings, and this robe and sash remind us that he is also our great high priest, the one who today intercedes for us in heaven. Now follow this description with me again in verse 14. It describes his head and hair as being like wool, white as snow. And three things are communicated here about Jesus in his glory. His holiness, his authority, and his dignity. He is the ancient of days who was, who is, and who is to come. If you pick up in Proverbs chapter 16 verse 31, you'll find that grey hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by a righteous life. In our culture, we dye grey hair, well, some do, to try to look younger. But in that culture, grey hair was like a badge of honor. 
and symbolic of wisdom. And again in verse 14, his eyes were like blazing fire, penetrating and discerning everything, missing nothing, seeing everything, eyes that speak of his wisdom, royalty, holiness, authority, dignity, wisdom. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And in the Bible, bronze is associated with judgment. It was on the bronze altar where the sacrifices were led in the Old Testament. It was at the bronze laver that the priests cleansed themselves. The book of Revelation is based on Old Testament imagery. And John, who would have been a Jewish believer, is calling on his Jewish background and is seeing Jesus as the judge of his people. Most of us don't like to think of Jesus that way. Is it not true that we prefer the gentle Jesus, meek and mild? We prefer a loving, compassionate Jesus, and he is that. But the judgment of all humanity rests in this Jesus that we're thinking of this morning. The Bible says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That has to be a part of our understanding of who Jesus is and our relationship to him. We've already said that the book of Revelation was primarily given as a source of comfort and encouragement to the persecuted Christians. But there is also this element of warning that each and every one of us will give an account of himself to God. Every choice and every decision we make should be made with that end result very much in mind. Any employer worth his or her salt will hold staff appraisals. Even David and I have annual appraisals with the elders. But how is it going to be for me on that day of my final appraisal before the Lord? How is it going to be for you this morning on that final day, that last appraisal? Will it prove to be the useless wood, hay, stubble that the Bible talks about? Or will it pass the refiner's fire as precious gold? Jesus is going to be our judge of all of that. Again, in verse 15, it says, His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And John is describing the authority of his words. There's a great commentary, I feel, on this verse in Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. And if, like me, you've stood and had the privilege of standing at the Niagara Falls, you'll recall the awe that's associated with the powerful waterfall. It's so majestic it almost frightens. The sheer surge of water is mind-blowing. And that's what John is trying to communicate here. The surging waters, the power, the awesomeness of this one of whom he's got a vision. And verse 16 says, In his right hand he held 
seven stars. And if you just glance down to verse 20, you'll find there that the angels of the seven churches are the seven stars. That's what it refers to. And then out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And that two-edged sword is symbolic of the power of his words. When we eventually arrive in Revelation chapter 19, we see Jesus at that stage confronting his enemies. And out of his mouth comes this sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He doesn't have to wrestle with his adversaries. The very glory of his countenance consumes them. Zechariah spoke of that in his prophecy in chapter 14 and verse 12. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Do you sense the awesomeness of John's experience? This is no helpless babe lying in a manger that we'll be thinking of in a few weeks' time. This is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the A to the Z, the Almighty. That's why we need this book, this book of Revelation, so that we can see him as he is right now in all his glory. And it says that his face, like the sun shining in all his brilliance, was to be seen in this vision. What an amazing vision that John saw. But how does John respond to all of this? How does John respond to all that he sees and all that's before him and all of its glory and brilliance and majesty? Well, have a look at verse 17. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet, though dead. And surely that should be the response for any of us when we truly encounter the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet in this age, how different it seems to be when we listen to certain religious TV programs where we have people telling us of how they were caught up into heaven and chatted with God and sat on his lap. You and I have enough experience with God to know that that is utter nonsense. There is an awesomeness about God that is beyond description. It's not so much a fear that he's going to get us, so to speak. There is the assurance of his love and his favor. That the one who is so majestic is the one who loves us very intimately and very personally. But to come into his presence in any way close to what John experienced is really to fall at his feet speechless. And on judgment day, nobody will stand before God and contest the verdict. Every mouth will be stopped and every knee will bow. We have those words in verse 17, those words of a tremendous comfort and encouragement. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. 
I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. So tell me, what does that mean to you and me this morning? What relevance does this vision of an exalted, glorified Christ given to John mean to you and me personally? This time, I don't have three questions. This time, I have three statements. I can trust him. He has the power to help me. And he will take care of my future. Have a look at verse 5. In verse 5, he's described as that faithful witness. Men and women of this generation have heard the name of Jesus many, many times. But what they need to know most is very simple. Can this Jesus actually be trusted? And in a world of religious fraudsters and pluralists, this is where we have to begin. We discover the answer in John's first title. He calls Jesus the faithful witness. And a witness tells what he has seen or heard. A faithful witness is the one whose testimony is reliable every single time. And John speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who can be relied upon to tell the truth. When he speaks, he speaks only the truth. His words are absolutely true and authoritative. Jesus Christ is the supreme truth teller. And those who want to find the truth must listen to him. And if you're searching this morning for truth, can I challenge you to take time to not only consider what we've read from the verses here in Revelation 1, but to go home this week and take time to read John's Gospel with an open heart and with an open mind. And while you do that, I pray that God will help you to find truth in him. Because secondly, he has the power to help me. He has the power to help us. Again in verse 5, we find John's second title for Christ. One, the faithful witness. And two, the firstborn from the dead. And this refers to his resurrection from the dead. When he rose from the dead, he was firstborn from the dead. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that he is the first person who ever rose from the dead, never to die again. During his ministry, Jesus raised several people from the dead, including, including Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And if you're reading through John's Gospel, you'll come to that at chapter 11. Each occasion where Christ raised people from the dead was a remarkable miracle. But they all found one thing in common. All of the people Jesus raised would eventually die again. But not Jesus. When he came out of the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning, he rose once and for all. When he left the grave, he left it for good. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is the first 
in a long line of people who will be raised from the dead never to die again. That assurance we have in 1 Thessalonians. For we believe, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Four very key words. For if we believe. It's as simple and yet it's as difficult as that very statement. What do you believe this morning? Do you believe that we will rise again in Christ because of what he has done for us? Thirdly, he will take care of my future. And this assurance comes in John's final title for Christ Jesus in verse 5. He calls Jesus the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the word used here for ruler means that he, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate authority over all the kings of the earth. They are great, but he is greater. They are mighty, but he is mightier. Millions answer to them, but they will answer to him. He is not merely one of the kings. He rules over all of them. And as we thought of earlier, in the first century, the mighty Nero, the emperor who thought he was the ruler of the kings of the earth, he held in his hands the power of life and death. Thumbs up, one man lived. Thumbs down, one man died. And it said that he ordered the burning of Rome and then blamed it on the early Christians. After that, he had Paul the Apostle beheaded, thinking that the Christian movement would die with him. But now 2,000 years have passed and the tables have turned. As someone has rather, I think, flippantly said, we name our dogs Nero and our sons Paul. Who are the rulers of the earth John is talking about? Well, there are many, many, numerous they are. Today we have political leaders in their various spheres, names like Obama, Putin, Netanyahu, Blair, Cameron, Sarkozy, Mugabe, Merkel, and scores of others just like them. But we can say this morning emphatically that Jesus is ruler over every single one of them. Oh, I know that all the evidence seems to point in the opposite direction. The pornographers go free. The politicians break the laws they write. The drug dealers make their millions. And the nations arm themselves for total destruction. And when you look around, you could make a good case that Satan is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But hey, it only seems that way. Satan has no power except the power granted to him by God. And in time and at the proper moment, Jesus will step back onto the stage of world history. We've been singing about it. Lo, he comes in clouds descending. Think of it. The hands that were nailed to the cross will someday rule the world. Though we don't see it today, it's certain and sure of fulfillment. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. 
Read it for yourself and see how the story ends. Will Jesus take care of my future? Of course he will. For he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we're in good hands when we're in the hands of those who rules the universe. And remember, he wins.